Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is writer, historian, and storyteller, Robin K. Foster. Robin resides in Arlington, Virginia, and is a history instructor at George Mason University. Robin has worked as an exhibits curator at various museums in North Jersey, and she was a history professor at Keene University before taking up her present position. In 2016, she published her first book, The Age of Sail and the Age of Aquarius, The South Street Seaport and the Crisis of the 1960s, a history of how South Street Seaport Museum was established during the socio-political cultural upheavals during the late 1960s. Two years later, she released her second book, Carl Van Doren, A Man of Ideas, a biography of Carl Van Doren, one of America's premier literary critics. Tonight, we discuss and pay tribute to Robin's literary career and her present literary projects. Well, Robin, welcome to the show. It's a great honor and privilege to have you here. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying now, you're presently working on a new book project. Is that correct, Robin? What's its topic? I am. I've been working on this for about two years since the start of the pandemic. Um, my, um, the topic is, um, it's, it's biographies. It's a short biography, storytelling of different women in different places that I have spent the past couple of years traveling around. Um, so much of my work and my research ideas were sort of thwarted when the libraries and the National Archives and whatnot um, closed their doors. And I, I really started exploring my own backyard and neighborhoods and areas and states and parts of the countries that I knew well. And I found stories in the landscapes there, stories of different women who had gone through, you know, a variety of challenges and, and upheavals of their own. Um, that I could sort of connect with um, in light of the, the pandemic and the changes to our lives that have happened more recently. So it's a series of chapters um, around the country of, of women across the past 150 years or so and um, and telling stories about those women. Okay, so it's, so it's not so much com contemporary. You're go you, Some are contemporary, but sometimes you're going backwards in time, correct? As you They're said, 150 years. They're all um, the late 1800s through the 1900s. Um, um, so they're all back in time about 100 years ago, but, you know, the human experience, the human condition is, is a big, you know, endless cycle, and we all sort of experience the same um, gut emotions and, and experiences, and so I'm relating sort of my present experiences over the past couple of years with stories of women from, from the past. When can we expect its release, Robin? I'm hoping sometime in, 2000, in 23. Um, I'm hoping sometime next year. That, that is not set in stone yet. Um, I don't have those details ironed out quite yet, but I, my hope is that sometime in the next, in the next year. Considering that we just had the, uh, the Dobbs, the Supreme Court Dobbs ruling, do you think you're going to factor that new ruling into, into your book? You might want to update it a bit to reflect what happened with Dobbs? I'm sorry, with what? The, the Supreme Court Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Oh, right. Yes, of course. Um, my my characters um, predate even that decision. I'm, most of my characters are um, were living in the from 1840 to about 1950 or so. So um, I'm I'm even predating sort of that that social, cultural, political situation. Okay. Getting let's let's talk about you know, your past book projects here. Now, in your very first book, what, you know, uh, The Age of Sail and The Age of Aquarius, what led you to examine the subject of the South Street Seaport Museum in your first book? 
So coming from, coming from a museum background, I got my master's degree in museum studies at Seton Hall University, and I'd worked in um, history museums around um, North Jersey and the New York area for a number of years, and I was um, in grad school working on my PhD, and for a grad school assignment, I just sort of started a small research paper on the South Street um, Seaport Museum. And the more I dug into that, and the more I learned about the founding of the South Street Museum, which was founded in the late 60s, um, you know, a time that was when cities across the U.S. were, were literally burning. You know, we had those yeah. riots, rebellions from L.A. to Detroit, Newark, Plainfield, you know, D.C. Um, the press actually dubbed, dubbed summertime with the riot season um, in, in television and, and print media. And I was really curious, the more I dug into it, um, about the growing historic preservation movement in the late 60s. There's a kind of a, it had been kind of a lull since the early 1900s when historic preservation sort of get, gathered its foothold. In the, in the 60s, historic preservation had a resurgence. And it was really curious to me that the movement seemed to gain strength in parallel with the increasing urban crisis across the country. I mean, it seemed incongruous, actually, that there were two totally different realities happening. The urban crisis, as, as you know, was, was, was exploding across, you know, newspaper and, and magazines, Time and Life, and, you know, Walter Cronkite reporting in the news, and then the rise of historic preservation creating this sort of magical myth of a pre-industrial sort of colonial American history um, and no one was really talking about that. No one in academia, no one in sort of the museum world was really talking about this, this weird juxtaposition um, of sort of white upper class folks interested in creating these historic districts across the country, mostly in the East Coast. You know, we had sort of Faneuil Hall in Boston and later on Baltimore had the Inner Harbor. Um, but these, and these museum minded sort of projects like South Street Seaport. Um, during a time when the nation was, was falling apart, was burning or was crumbling, um, draft, you know, draft card burnings and a hated war in Vietnam. Um, you know, the late 60s was a, a cultural, societal, political crisis. Um, and, and the challenges to the status quo, you know, and to, to what some people call, you know, bourgeoisie American life, um, challenges across the board. And yet this sort of, this sort of sentiment, this sort of impetus to, to not even historically preserve, because so much of what happened there is more historic fabrication or reproduction. But this idea that if we sort of recreate this sort of golden, glorious age, you know, we'll be okay. I, I found that juxtaposition just fascinating. Who were the key figures in the Friends of South Street? Who were the key people? So the leader of that pack, the leader of the Friends of South Street, was a gentleman by the name of Peter Stanford. He had grown up um, sailing. His father was a trustee at the Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. Um, he, you know, by the time he was he was an adult, he was living in Manhattan. He was an ad man writing um, print copy for advertisements, uh, but still a sailor. He and his wife were avid sailors. And um, I really think for Stanford, he, he called sailing ships wind ships, whether they were schooners or, or light sails. He loved this term, wind ships. That was his term. I really think he felt that that these these sailing ships could teach New Yorkers um, specifically about a slower pace of life, could recall sort of that pre-industrial sort of idol um, of what life once was. And I I think the sailing ship represented for him an answer um, to that urban crisis, you know, that I just talked about. Um, the old man of the sea, you know, that romance of the old man of the sea and the traditional American hero myths. 
um, these represented the Stanford way of life in which people work with their hands. You know, there were, there were craftsmen and, and tradespeople. Um, everyone wasn't just a cog in the industrial machine. And, um, and he actually said Stanford actually felt that the cultural climate of his time of late 60s lacked any meaning. Um, the present, he said, seemed meaningless. He felt most people of his generation felt the same way. And the future was absolutely uncertain. But um, Peter Stanford, the past, you know, that was where heroism could be found. That was where patriotism could be found. Um, and he took it to heart when Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., in 1968, Schlesinger um, gave the commencement speech at the City University of New York. And he asked this question. He said, you know, in light of what's happening in 67, 68, you know, assassinations and, and like I said, the, um, the, the hated, heated war in Vietnam and um, Schlesinger asked, the world today is asking a terrible question, a question which every citizen of this republic should be putting to himself, what sort of people are we, we yeah. Americans? And I think Stanford took that to heart. He, want, he wanted to, to provide a better answer to what sort of people are we, we Americans? Yeah, and that question is still applicable today when you absolutely. think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, who, what powerful friends were they able to acquire that helped them make the South, the South Street Seaport Museum a reality? Did they have high-priced, you know, supporters? I mean, high, high echelon supporters. Who yeah, were you they? You would need that for sure in the priciest, you know, the capital of capitalism in Manhattan, where real estate uh, prices um, then as now were astronomical. And a couple of years before um, Stanford um, started this grassroots Friends of South Street. Um, a New York State Senator um, named Whitney Seymour Jr. had introduced a bill um, to create a state maritime museum. So this was already in the works. I think that bill was introduced in 1966. So um, that bill was already in the works. Um, you know, uh, Seymour had concerns like, like Jane Jacobs um, and many other um, in the historic preservation um, camp, yeah. concerns with uh, the urban renewal bulldozer, um, you know, wrecking its way across lower Manhattan raising whatever was left of the 19th century uh, cityscape um, that that the city's past was being bulldozed um, and Seymour was concerned about that had submitted um, a bill uh, which passed um, uh, and New York uh, uh, Governor Rockefeller signed the bill so there was a, a legislation on the books to create a state maritime museum and a friend of Peter Stanford's alerted him to these plans for the museum and Soon Peter and his wife Norma uh, were put in touch with Senator Seymour. They met with him, and that's when they immediately formed the uh, the grassroots organization to help support the plan. Originally, was to help support the development of of the State Maritime Museum. Robin, when you were doing your research, what was probably the biggest surprise you discovered while researching your book, uh, The Age of Sail? Biggest surprise when I was researching my book. I think again, um, I mean, uncovering the story as it was, was interesting enough. I went to the Rockefeller Archive Center up in, um, I think it's in Terrytown, New York. Yeah. And going through the, um, the memos and the papers of, um, it, because there was a, there was an opposition plan in the works. David Rockefeller, um, who was the head of the downtown Lower Manhattan Association and brother of the governor, they had, their, this was so bizarre, they had their own maritime theme planned project in the works at the same moment. So in Lower Manhattan, which is a tiny, small, little, you know, convoluted, cobblestone area of, of, of the tip of the island, there were two maritime plans now. And, and Rockefeller's plan was the Francis Tavern Museum block project. Francis Tavern 
um, centuries-old tavern where General uh, where George Washington um, yeah. said farewell to the to the troops. Yeah. So he had his own plans with with the the financial community to revitalize Lower Manhattan um, in the late '60s because Midtown now is booming. Midtown high rises and skyscrapers were luring finance, uh, financial industries up uptown to Midtown where there were newer, gleamier, more modern facilities. And David Rockefeller had a had an investment in, in keeping um, the, the banking industry located downtown, and they had their own museum block project um, going on. So I read about these two competing museum uh, block projects. One at the same time, there really wasn't going to be enough um, donor money to go around for both. The, the Francis um, Tavern project eventually folded, and Seaport um, remained. But that was curious to me that there were these two competing, this tiny little area, these two competing projects for the same sort of revitalization of this heroic, mythical sense of sort of pre-industrial, patriotic America. Let's move on to your second book. Now, what led you to write about Carl Van Doren? So I had completed Age of Sail. I was sort of thinking, you know, you're, when you're a writer, you're researching, you're always sort of, you have your ears open. You, you know, I'm not one of these writers who writes every day. I have friends who, who will sit down and write 500, you know, uh, words a day or, you know, they'll sit and write for an hour a day. I, you know, the muse either hits me or, you know, she's gone. So <laughs> I was sort of waiting for the muse to strike and to show me the way. And and I had grown up hearing stories of, of the Van Dorans um, since I was little. My my great aunt used to talk about Carl and Mark Van Doren, um, who were, in fact, second cousins to my grandfather and his mm. siblings. So mm. she always had the, you know, the cutout newspaper, you know, articles on the Van Dorans and the Life magazine pictures. And so I, I, I grew up knowing that we had this family connection to the Van Doren literary dynasty. And then one day I was, um, I was on the Purdue, you know, I mean, the, uh, the Princeton University, um, the library website, and I discovered that Carl Van Doren's papers were kept at Princeton University, which was only about an hour from my house. Mm. So my idea was then to do a literary history of Carl Van Doren. He was a writer in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. I love that era of writing. I mean, to me, in my own sort of sense of nostalgia, that's the golden age of writing for me, where I, I just love that sort of crisp, clear prose of the early 20th century. And I, my idea was to write a literary history of all of his books and all of his works. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize for his um, his biography of Ben Franklin. And I thought, well, I'm going to go through you know, all of his essays and his his publications, and he was an editor, and he had all these books, and you know he won the Pulitzer, and I was going to do a literary history. And then I went through, started going through the um, the file boxes of his correspondence, and the entire direction of my book changed because when you sit down and you pour through letters after letters after letters, personal correspondence, um, professional correspondence, I mean the the whole life of this man just grew before my very eyes, and so the. I ended up writing more of a, a personal um, history, a personal sketch of Van Doren's life um, based mostly on correspondence. But, you know, back then, it wasn't uncommon for someone to write 10, 12 letters a day yeah. and, to, and to preserve those letters. Yeah. You know, hopefully most of them were, were typewritten and not handwritten because <laughs> <laughs> that can be difficult. But so I, I ended up writing a much more sort of personal biography of, of Van Doren than, than I originally anticipated. Now, was this bio done with the cooperation of the Van Doren family by any chance? Absolutely. So this was, you know, my, my researcher's dream. I, um, I know that um, 
you know, the Vandorans have continued to sort of, you know, to, um, to remain in the, in sort of the, the, the public eye. And Adam Van Doren, who would, who would be um, Carl Van Doren, let's see, um, nephew, I suppose, um, is teaches at Yale. He's a photographer and artist. He's had some books out. And so I was able to reach out to Adam Van Doren by email to let him know I was working on this project. Um, could he put me in touch with any of Carl Van Doren's grandchildren? And sure enough, he did. He was happy to to uh, introduce me to his cousin, um, Susan Claw, who is the granddaughter of Carl Van Doren. She lives near Boston. We conversed over email. We talked on the phone. She invited me up to the Van Doren summer home in Connecticut um, on a couple of occasions when she found a trunk in the attic of old letters between her grandparents when they were courting and newly married. And she wondered if I might be interested. So this was, you know, this was a writer's dream. I literally had a trunk in the attic of letters to go through. I stayed at her home. We had dinner with family and friends. I mean, it was really, I couldn't have, 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 have had a more gracious or um, welcoming hostess and Susan. And that was just really an incredible experience all the way around. How influential was Carl Van Duren in the realm of American literature during the early 20th century? I mean, can you, when you said he was a writer, was he also a critic? Did I get that wrong in my earlier introduction? Was was he also a critic or was he You're an author? You're exactly right. He was a literary critic. I mean, we don't really have literary critics anymore. That profession sort of gone by the wayside. It wasn't a, he wasn't a book reviewer. I mean, there's a very different thing between we now, um, you know, you can easily enough find a, a book review. Um, but literary criticism, I sort of fell by the wayside in the mid-century. Literary criticism was were essays in which a writer would write about, you know, a body of work by a certain author, or, and they really were written for someone who had read this author's work. Mm. And now the literary critic was writing, you know, with some sort of slant or erudition showing, you know, he understands the, sort of the body of work and he's inserting it into the cultural landscape. And, um, you know, it was a, I say it was possibly pedantic, but again, the, the writing of that era, I, I just find so clear and, and, and un, unassuming. Um, but yes, he was a literary critic. He wrote on everybody who was anybody, and he and Carl Van Dorn was not only a writer and a critic, but he was an editor. He was the editor of um, the, the Nation and the Century, two mm. uh, widely popular literary magazines in the 20s and 30s. So um, at that time, the, the canon of American literature was still had still sort of been set by generations before Van Dorn. So he wanted to publish the voices of new writers like Hemingway and Fitzgerald mm. and. Um, Eleanor Wiley and um, Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know, those writers that Gertrude Stein called the lost generation. Um, ben Dorn was interested in publishing the voices of the new writers, the new modern, the modern spirit, the modern sentiment, the um, not sentimental, you know, not traditional. And, and so he was very much involved in getting a lot of these voices into, into print. You can include Dos Passos in that too? Would absolutely, you, yeah. absolutely. And they were, they, they, were, they were good friends as well, yes. What was the biggest surprise you uncovered while researching Carl Van Duren's life? Um, the biggest surprise, uh, because initially I was I was thinking I was going to be writing a, a literary history, and I started going through correspondence, and I think the biggest surprise was uncovering as much as I did about his personal life, mm. um, specifically his romantic life. I mean, he was married to his wife, his first wife, Irita, um, for about 25 years. Um, Irita Van Doren went on to become um, a very well-respected uh, um editor in her own right. Um, they divorced, and then he had a second marriage to a much younger woman named Jean Wright Gorman, who was a bit of a party girl. That 
marriage ended disastrously. She actually hung herself. Um, oh uh, that was um, that was a bizarre story to uncover in, in the in the research because it had been told a number of ways. It was not something that was talked about, you know, as widely as we might discuss um, problems of that nature now. And then he met later in life, when he was about 60, he met a much younger writer um, at a writing conference in in Oregon um, or Washington State. Um, he was about 60. She was probably in her early 20s. Her name was Elizabeth Marion. She had written a few novels. Um, Still lived at home. This was now during, you know, she lived at home during the Depression and following. And they had about a two-year relationship only through letters. They met just the one time. But then from that point until the rest of his life, it was a very poignant, touching, very sweet, um, very heartbreaking, um, tender relationship between Van Doren and this younger woman writer whom he knew he would never see again. But you know, I, he shared a lot with her that I did not see evidenced in his personality in any of the correspondence I read, and I read many linear feet of correspondence. There was a side of him that came to light through those letters that I would not ever, otherwise ever have known about him, and that was that was a really touching um, that was a really touching um, thing to uncover. Robin, please tell our listeners where can they find your books. So you can find my books, um, I mean, online, you can go to Barnes and Noble, um, you can go to um, Amazon, you can go to any local bookstore, I'm, you know, big, big shout outs to all the indie bookstores out there, you can go to any bookstore and they can order anything for you anytime. So if, you know, if you want to buy any book and you, they don't have it in stock at your local bookstore, they will order it for you. So you'll find it online on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, any local bookstore can order, can order my books for you um, at any moment. Robin, whenever I, whenever I interview a, write, a writer, I always ask the standard question because I'm always fascinated because just how different the answers are. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become an author in your own right or perhaps influence your personal writing style? So... I, I mean, when I was really young, you know, grade school, I was a huge Judy Bloom fan. So when I, when I do, I also do some short story writing. And when I, when I do go into the realm of fiction short story writing, I do sort of remember the, the way that author um, Judy Bloom um, created her characters and I'm doing character sketches and trying to describe character. I do sort of think back to the characters that she she created on the page that just grabbed my attention. Um, when I was in college and I started reading, you know, sort of the more grown-up books, I think the, the first book that's still with me today is my, you know, is my shining golden star. The thing I can never, ever achieve, I think, is Annie Dillard's um, The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I think that her blend of, of, of nature writing and introspection and personal essay and science and religion and myth and history and the way she weaves it all together in, in Tinker Creek to me either makes me want to just cry in joy or shrivel to the ball and say, why bother writing anything? <laughs> you can't be <laughs> in that book. I mean, that book to me is just, you know, if you're going to take, if I'm going to take one book with me, you know, on a desert island, it's going to be Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which covers every, you know, all the bases. And I think is nothing will ever surpass that. That writing is just a dream come true. 
Robin, in your LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself as a storyteller. Do you travel and give lectures on certain topics? Do you do that? I do um, travel and give book talks or lectures. Um, this past these past two years, I've only been um, in research and writing mode, um, which actually worked out because the last couple of years have been so you know wonky as far as whatever our typical patterns were. You know, <laughs> they haven't been that for a while. So I've really just been, I mean, I, I've been um, working on this book I'm on now. I've been around the country um, for the past two years traveling almost nonstop um, and in, in full-on research and writing mode. But next year in 23, when the book is out, um, I will resume my, you know, my, my, my speaking and lectures and, and all that information, you know, you could find on my website when I'm back up on the road. Robin, let me know the, mo the precise release date because I'm I'm booking uh, guests for next year, you know, for next year, and I'd love to have you on again when your next when next book does come out. I want I want to have you on in the worst way. Okay. I would love to. I am so excited about this this new book. Um, these these women I've been living with for two years, their spirits and their tenacity and their perseverance and their energy is just so. It's been so fulfilling to me, and I've, I've made friends with these, you know, the spirits of these women. I'm, I'm so excited for it to come out, so I will absolutely take you up on that. Yes, thank you. Robin, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors, and uh, take care, and, and hopefully sometime next year we will do this. We will talk about your newest release on my show, okay? Thank you, Matthew. I look forward to it very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing author Rick Schmelter. Thank you and good night.